of people. And so we need to understand who we're working with, right? What is the, what is the material that we're working with? You know, if we could think about it that way, what, what are, what are we working with? We're working with people. Well, what are people like? How, how is our, how are we going to fulfill our mission? We need to understand people. And who best understands people? And the answer to that is that God does, right? God is our creator. He's the one who made us. He knows exactly what people are like. Now, last time we talked about what scripture says about people and we saw two things. Does anyone want to give us one of those things that we talked about last time? What does the Bible teach about men? Yeah, Pete says there's not one good, right? Romans 3.10, there's not one good, not even one. So that was the first thing. What did we call that? Depravity, yeah, total depravity. What was the other thing we, we learned about, about people before that even? Yeah, great, Dwayne. Created in God's image. Created in God's image. So men were made in God's image. And, and what that means is that, that there's a value to men. There's a, a value to the souls of men. Uh, because God has placed his stamp on men, therefore men are extremely valuable. And there's a, a great value that, that we place and that God places on a soul. Um, but also, we recognize that this men and women who are created in the image of God have fallen into sin and are, are sinful sinners. And so the image of God in us has been marred. It's not been totally taken away, but there's been a, a, a marring of the image of God in us. We fell into sin. And so we, as Descendants of Adam and Eve. Remember, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Adam was our representative in the garden. He was there to represent the human race. And all of us have descended from him. We were born through him. And when Adam fell, we fell. Right? When, when Adam sinned, we sinned. His sin became our sin. And ever since then, we as a people have been born into sin. And we are sinners. Now, we, we just kind of ever so briefly talked about that last time, the, the transmission of sin. But however we understand the way that sin transmits through Adam to the people that were born from him, everybody recognizes that there is sin in the world, right? That, you know, you just look at the world, the reality of sin is really undeniable, right? Why is the world so sinful? Why is the world so evil? Why are there so many thefts and crimes and adulteries and and why do people not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? And and the answer is it's because we are sinners. We've been born into sin. And we especially can see the reality of sin when we think about the fact that ultimately sin is a failure to be utterly like Christ in every part of of our life, right? If we define sin biblically, it's even more apparent 
how sinful the world is, right? We can, we can think, well, the world's, you know, maybe generally good. We can kind of have a sense of like, there's a, there's a bit of good in the world until we start saying, well, anything that's not utterly like Christ in everything is sinful. And if you start defining sin like that, the way the Bible defines sin, then you just realize, wow, even the best person is actually quite sinful. Um, if we define sin as the failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you look at the world with that definition, you're going to see that, yes, this world is a sinful world. Because when I look at the world, I don't see people that love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't see people that would rather have Jesus than anything that this world affords today. I see people that would rather have anything this world affords today if if they can get rid of Jesus and his demands and his commandments for their life. So so we saw that that even our very nature is sinful last time. That we are by nature sinful. Um, David said in Psalm 51 and verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And David there is not talking about anything that, that his mother did before he was born. He's talking about himself, and he's recognizing that, that from his birth, from the moment that he was brought forth into this world, he was brought forth in iniquity. There, there's a sin in his life right from birth. Right from the, even the moment of conception, in, in the, in, in sin did my mother conceive me. In, in the moment of conception, I was, I was born, I, I came to be as a, a sinful person. So last time we, um, we did a, uh, we began a survey of what scripture teaches about the depravity of man. And uh, we're going to review that a little bit today. And actually, tonight's going to be a little bit less interactive. Actually, pretty much the whole interaction has happened. So now you guys can just be like, oh, I don't have to answer any of Pastor Mike's hard questions. Um, so it's just, just the way that this worked out. And I just thought it's not going to probably go well if, if we make this interactive. But if you have a question, just put up your hand and I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer your question tonight. But I don't think there's a whole lot of of interaction that I've got planned in my notes. But but we're going to just kind of go through again that survey of what Scripture says about man. And I want to just start by saying this. If we believe Scripture, if we believe Scripture, we believe in the depravity of man. There's just no way of getting around that. If if you hold that Scripture is infallible and inerrant and inspired, then you must believe in the depravity of man. You can't believe the Bible and think that man is basically good. It just those two things don't work. Or you can't believe the Bible and think that that man is able to do something to please God, or that that man can be pleasing to God apart from divine grace. And we'll we'll talk about that. Anyone who holds to Scripture holds man to be a sinner by birth and by nature. And, and, I, and I'm, I really do mean that. Anyone who holds to Scripture does believe that man is a sinner by birth and by nature. Um, 
Doesn't matter what you believe about salvation, you believe that. We'll talk about how we can, how we understand salvation in light of man's depravity at the end. But let's just review what scripture says about depravity. And we could start in, in Genesis chapter 5. So Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of man into sin. What happens, what's, what's the key thing in Genesis chapter 5? Somebody could, could give me that one maybe. No, I believe that's chapter 4. Pretty close though. <laughs> Pretty close. Anyone looking at Genesis chapter 5? What's the, what's the key thing that's repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over? What's that? Okay, the, yeah, descendants. What happens to all those descendants after it tells you about how long they lived? They died, right? They, and he died, and he died. You could just go through this, and he died, 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 and he died. So that's Genesis chapter 5. Every single person that's born into this world died, and death, Scripture teaches, is a is the penalty for sin, right? So So every single person that comes into this world with the, the, the odd exception of Enoch there in verse 23 and 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Whatever happened with Enoch, it seems like he was taken into heaven uh, apart from death. But other than that, every single person in Genesis chapter 5 dies. We'll, let's go to Romans chapter 5. And I just want to show you a, a really important verse on, on this whole thing. Romans 5.12 It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so, this is, this is Paul... I don't know how much I want to explain Romans 5 right now, but, but Romans 5, Paul's explaining how can it be that we can have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us? How can, how can somebody else's righteousness be counted as ours? And what, what Paul's answer is in chapter 5 is basically this happened before with Adam where Adam's sinfulness was counted as ours. And so if Adam's sinfulness could be counted as ours, then why couldn't another representative and his righteousness be counted as ours? And that's what Paul's doing in chapter 5, is he's saying, look, this whole thing happened before, and there's this contrast between Adam and everyone who is in Adam and Christ and everyone who is in Christ. And if you're in Adam, you are a sinner and you are going to face condemnation. If you are in Christ, then you are counted righteous and you're going to receive justification and life and, and all of these things. And so, but, but really a key, key verse is the end of verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's through Adam, sin came into the world and death through sin. So through that sin of that one man came death. 
And so, he says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, Wayne Grudem says this about, about this verse. He says, quote, he says, this idea that all men sinned means that God thought of us all as having sinned when Adam disobeyed. And he says it's further indicated by the next two verses, Romans 13 and 14. We'll look at those in one minute. He says here Paul points out that from the time that of Adam to the time of Moses, people did not have God's written law. Though their sins were not counted as infractions of the law, they still died. He says the fact that they died is very good proof that God counted people guilty on the basis of Adam's sin. So because when because of what Adam did, all men sinned in him. And so verse 13 says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, right? From the from the time of Adam until the time of Moses there was sin in the world, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And like Wayne Grudem says, I think the best way to understand that is that sin isn't counted as an infraction against the law when there is no law. Yet, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. And so God counts us guilty because of what Adam did. And that's how, that's how sin kind of came into the world. We are, are by nature's sinners and that sin, even the, the, the original sin of being born as a sinner in God's world, that's counted a sin worthy of death. And so not only are we sinners in our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes, but even our very natures, as we saw last time, even our very natures are counted as sinful when we come into this world. Because we aren't, like I said before, we aren't just naturally loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We aren't naturally um, utterly like Christ in everything we think, say, or do. And so through Adam, we all became guilty, and we all became sinners, and we have all actually sinned. Every, every person who's mature in this world has actually sinned and failed to be perfectly like the Lord Jesus Christ. So to continue then, just looking at some verses, I'll go through these really more, a little more quickly here, but we could start then just in the very next chapter, Genesis Chapter 6 and verse 5. We looked at this last time. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or Genesis 8.21 where God says that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Again, 6-5. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Solomon recognized. We saw what David saw said about his sin. We, we saw David's sin. Um, David recognized that he was born in sin. Solomon, the, the son of David also. 1 Kings 8-46 says this. If they sin against you... For there is no one who does not sin. There is no one who does not sin. Or Ecclesiastes, and actually let's go ahead and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. 
I quoted this verse last time, but I didn't show you the context, so I, w- I want to do that. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20 is a real key verse on depravity. This is most likely the verse that Paul summarizes at the beginning of Romans 3 verse 10, which we, we looked at last time too, but Ecclesiastes 7.20, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good. And the, the, the sense of the tense of that verb is that who continually does good and then, and never sins. And in the context of Ecclesiastes chapter seven, really, this is an amazing verse because in the context, Solomon is dealing with the question of, of what we might call, um, bad things happening to people, right? So, so, you know, the, we might wonder, like, why do, why do bad things happen? How come trials and adversity and affliction happens to people? And, and as Solomon's dealing with that question in kind of chapter six and chapter seven, these are, these are like exceptions to the, the general rule of the book of Proverbs that, you know, if you do well, if you, if you serve the Lord, if you honor the Lord with your life, generally speaking, life will go well, right? Generally, generally speaking, you'll be blessed if you honor God with your life and obey His commandments. Well, Solomon's answering the, the other side of that. What about those times when it doesn't seem to go well for a righteous person? And, and part of his answer to that is that, well, there actually is no such thing as a righteous person who does good and never sins. There's, there's no such thing as an innocent person who suffers, right? Because we all are sinners and, and deserve far worse than what we actually receive from the Lord. And so uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20 is just a, a really important verse on, on the depravity of man. Look at verse 13. He says, Consider the work of God... Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, behold, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And so Solomon again is saying, look, I see righteous people who live a, a good life, live a righteous life, and yet they suffer in this world. How come that can be? How, and how come sometimes wicked people prosper? Well, Solomon says, when you really think about it, there actually isn't a righteous person who does good and who never sins. Now, again, if we just flip over to, to chapter 9, he's he's kind of still talking about the same thing. He kind of circles back to it. And in, in chapter 9 and verse 1, he, Solomon says this, but, I, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Now, let's just kind of stop there. Paul, uh, Solomon is is examining everything that happens in life under in this world and and he's examining the wise and their deeds and and he says we're all in the hand of God right God is really in control God is sovereign 
in the world. And then he says, in the, in God's sovereignty, we don't know what he's going to dish out to us. It could be love or it could be hate. And, and I think the idea there is that it could be things that we like, that we want to have happen to us. It could be difficulties and trials, right? So that, that's the idea of that, that love or hate. We're all in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, we don't know what's going to happen. Both are before us. He says it is the same for all in verse 2. Since it is the, the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So basically Solomon's saying whether you do good or bad, whether you do, do right or wrong, you don't know what's going to happen to you. The same thing happens to everyone. We go through difficulties. And, and, and the same thing that he's talking about there actually is again is death, right? Everyone is going to die in this world. And that shows again that God has counted us as sinners in Adam. So this, this is an evil, verse 3, this is an evil that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. And so again, Solomon's recognizing there that, that even though he does acknowledge there's some people that are more righteous than others, yet the hearts of all the sons of men are evil full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and then they're going to die. Well, just to kind of keep going through some more verses, Psalm 143 and verse 2 says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. There's not a, a single person that is righteous in their standing before God, according to the psalmist. Proverbs 20 and verse 9 says, Who can say... I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. And of course, the answer to that is nobody can say that they have made their heart pure. Nobody can say that they are clean from their sin in, in the sense that, that they have not sinned. Uh, again, 1 John, and actually maybe you might want to turn to, to 1 John just to see this one. Uh, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. John says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so again, because God has told us that we have sinned and that we are sinners, we can't say that we have not sinned, and to say that would make us or would make God a liar. We would be saying that God is a liar because God has said that we we all have sinned. And if we say that we have no sin, that is, if we say as, as believers that there's even still in our lives that there's no sin now in our lives, well, we are deceiving ourselves because there actually is sin in us because, again, we're not utterly like Christ in everything we think, say, and do. And so the, the right view of a, of a, of a believer, right? John's trying to prove 
one who, who would know that they're a believer. Well, uh, a true believer is one who acknowledges his sins, confesses his sins, and God is faithful and just. He forgives us our sins and He cleanses us from unrighteousness as we live in this world. And, and one day, ultimately, He will, He will fully cleanse us of righteousness in the glorified state. But, but we are those who have sinned and have sin in our life even still. No matter, no matter who you are, no matter how much God has worked to sanctify you, there's still sin in your life. And to say otherwise, is to deny, deny the truth. Well, let's go to, let's go to another one. One, I think just one or two more here. Matthew chapter 15. And this, this is a really an important one. Matthew, Mark 7 is a, a parallel text, but Matthew 15 and verse 18. Matthew 15, 18 says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So what we need to do with this text is just ask ourselves, where does evil come from in the world? Where does evil come from in the world? You know, do, do we see murders and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witnesses and slander in the world? And, and of course the answer is, well, of course we see those things in the world. Those things are, are everywhere in the world. But where does it come from? Why is, why is the world like this? Why is there such wickedness in this world why do we see thefts and fornications and murders and evil thoughts and slander in the world well it's because it, it comes out of the hearts of men right it comes, it comes out of our hearts and so a sinful world comes through sinful people who have sinful hearts and Scripture shows us that nobody is exempt from this. There's not a, a single saint that lived without sin. There's not a, a single saint that lived without sin. Or, or to say it more, more positively, there, there's no sinless saint. And, and God even really seems to go out of His way in Scripture to show us when, um, when there is a, a very holy man in Scripture that God greatly uses. There's always... A little story that God tells about, about how they messed it up, right? How they weren't the Messiah, how they sinned in some kind of a grievous way. And so there is no sinless saint, and the only sinless one that ever lived was the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Him, only He was, was sinless. And the reason that the, the, again, that, that He could be sinless, whereas, whereas every single other person that ever came into the world wasn't, is because we were born in Adam, but Christ came as a new representative and He was never in Adam. Christ never came from Adam. He came as, as a, a separate representative and that's how He can save us from our sins. As a, as a separate representative of the human race. And He was born of 
the Virgin Mary, but he wasn't born through an earthly father. And the human nature that he took upon himself came to him through the Holy Spirit. And that's why the, one of the reasons why the virgin birth is so important to uphold, because it, it upholds Christ as our representative. Um, so when we see a sinful world, we, we know that it's because of sinful men and we've all sinned. And, and again, let me just read Romans 3. We, we did see this one last time, but Romans 3.10, the, the kind of summary of, of it all, as Paul is proving that everyone is, is guilty before God, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And that's probably, that, that's the one thing here that's not a quote from the Old Testament. It, it's probably, if it's drawn from anywhere, drawn from Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, uh, none is righteous. Look at the exclusive language here. None. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so uh, again, in the, in these verses, uh, Romans 3, we see that, that this applies to all men. There's not one person that's an exception to this, right? There's none. No, not one. Not one. Not one. Not even one. So, so there's no exception. All men are part of this. And, and the other thing that we see in these verses is that the whole person has been affected by sin, right? That every part of the person has been affected. And so the, the whole of mankind is, is under sin like this. And the whole of each person is sinful. The right, the, remember the heart, what we saw in Matthew 15, is the control center of the person. It's the person's thoughts, will, emotions. All of those things are, are, are bound up in what the scripture calls the heart. And if the heart is sinful, then the core is sinful, and then everything that comes out of that core or everything that comes out of that fountain is going to be sinful. Now, let's go to one that we haven't gone to. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really kind of hitting hard on this because, because this is really, really foundational stuff that really uh, affects everything else that we understand and do as a church, right? If we don't get this right, then, right, if, if you don't understand the, the condition, then you're going to give the wrong cure, right? Does that make sense? If I'm not a doctor or anything, but if, if you don't, if you, if you're not, pres- if you're not, what do you call it? Prescribing? No. If you're not diagnosing, thank you, if you're not diagnosing the, the, the right problem, you're not going to administer the right prescription. And so we, we got to understand what we're dealing with so that we can actually help people and not just what, what Jeremiah calls like heal their wounds superficially. So it's really important that we, we get these things. And so that's why I'm just going over this almost tediously here. But look at, look at, uh, Ephesians 4, 17. 
Paul's talking to believers here, and he's telling them how to live their lives, how to, how to walk. And he says, now, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And so we would ask ourselves, well, how do the Gentiles walk, Paul? How are we, how are we not supposed to walk? And then he tells us, the way that they walk is in the futility of their minds. Then he says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And then in verse 19 he says they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, verse 17 is really, 17 and 18 together are really, really key verses on the depravity of man. You're not supposed to walk like this, Paul says. You're not supposed to walk in the futility of, of your mind, right? The, the Gentiles, they walk in the futility of their minds. They are, then, then he gives another statement. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, maybe you don't see it as clearly in the ESV, um, but in the, in the Greek text, there's this series of, of um, causal statements. Now, when, when we argue something, we usually argue from the, the, the cause to the effect. But Paul's actually arguing kind of backwards from the way that we're used to. And, and, and what he ends up doing, he, he argues from the effect to the cause here. So the, the effect, the final kind of thing is the futility of their mind. But if we, if we trace it back and we say, well, why did they have futile minds? Well, it's because they are darkened in their understanding. Well, why are they darkened in their understanding? Well, because they're alienated from the life of God. Why are they alienated from the life of God? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Well, why are they ignorant in, in, in them? That's kind of a weird statement. We'll come back to that. Why are they ignorant? Well, it's because of their hardness of heart, right? And you see, you kind of see that? This is, this is a, a commentator here, Harold Honer. He says, quote, in reviewing these two verses, a series of causes and effects becomes apparent. The hardness of their hearts towards God caused their ignorance. Honor's working the way that we normally do from the, from the cause to the effect. So he says, again, the hardness of their hearts towards God caused their ignorance. Their ignorance concerning God and His will caused them to be alienated from the life of God. Their alienation caused their minds to be darkened and their darkened minds caused them to walk in the futility of mind. And so you note here that it all started with hardness of heart, right? Men started with this hard hearts and, and because of this hard heart, there's a, an ignorance that is in them. It's not something that's external from them. It's not like there's a, a problem, like they have a lack of knowledge. The, the problem, this ignorance is an internal kind of a thing that they don't know God and His ways. And the, the result of this whole thing is that they, they walk in the futility of their mind. And, and what that means is they live for empty things. Instead of living for the glory of the Lord and for His honor, 
they live and chase after all kinds of futile and empty things. And so this really, again, this just shows, this is man as he comes into the world. This is how the, the Gentiles who didn't know God, this is how they live. And this is the result of their hard hearts. Um, Paul shows us in Romans that the Gentiles are really no different than the, the Jews, or the Jews are no different than the Gentiles in that way, that they are sinners too, and they have hard hearts. I don't think anybody would want to argue that, that Israel didn't have hard hearts. Um, so, earlier in Ephesians, if we just go back to chapter 2, earlier already Paul said that the unsaved person is actually dead in their trespasses and sins. And so Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, we, we've kind of covered these verses before at, at other times, but notice that there. You were dead. That is the state that the Ephesians were in before they were saved. They were, they were dead in their trespasses and sins, and they, they once walked in those. Verse 2, they were, they were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that, it now, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so we see here that man as he comes into this world is in this state of, of deadness in sins. And they, they walk then in this state, they walk according to the world, and according to the, the devil, that's the, the prince of the power of the air. That's really just a, a fancy way of saying the devil and the evil spirits that are, are working in this world. And of course, as they're doing that too, they're carrying out their own desires, the, the desires of the flesh and of the mind or of the body and the mind as the ESV translates it. They're, they're carrying out, again, verse three, the passions of the flesh. And so, we could kind of summarize man in his dead state is that he's conformed to the world. He's controlled by the devil. He's under the control of, of Satan. And he is captive to the desires of his own flesh, right? He's, he's a slave to sin. He, and, and notice there it says the body and the mind. And we see again that, that the, the depravity of man affects our minds, it affects our thinking so that, that we walk in futility, right? So that we, we pursue and chase empty things. Now, as we saw in Ephesians, the, the way out of this, the way out of this death for the Ephesians, and, and really the only way out of this death, I'll, I'll argue in a minute, is that when they were made alive, with Christ, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so we see from Ephesians that the way out of this state is by God making us alive. We were dead, we need to be made alive. And only a powerful, life-giving act of God can deliver man from this condition. And that, that kind of brings us then into the next category here. That, that's, those are the, 
some, some scriptural evidence of, of what we call total depravity. That, that shows our, our depravity. Now, what we want to ask here as we kind of move into what, what we call total inability is what can bring somebody out of this state? Right? How can somebody get delivered from depravity? What needs to happen? Let's go to let's go to the book of of John, and we'll we'll see some verses in John here. There, we'll kind of go a little bit everywhere again here, but go to John eight thirty four. As we as we just kind of think about, and and Scripture sometimes gives us things from from multiple angles, and so we see multiple facets. We saw that we were dead, and we need to be made alive. Look at look at John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so notice here, Jesus calls everyone who practices sin, he says they are a slave to it. And verse 36, the, the way to be set free is when the Son of God sets you free, then you'll be free indeed. Jeremiah 13.23 asks this question. It says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Just think about that question. Can the, can the Ethiopian change his skin? What do you think? Can the, can the leper, leopard change his spots? Well, you know, no, he's a, he's got those spots. He can't change them. L- listen though to the answer that, that God's really going for. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. If the Ethiopian can change his skin, if the leopard can change his spots, then you, people, all of us, can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And so scripture presents man as a slave to sin who can't get himself out of it. Men are, and, and, and we're willing slaves to sin. We, we choose sin. It's not that we just are slaves. We wish we could get free from sin. We're kind of like willing slaves to sin where we've kind of brought ourselves in and shut the door because that's what we most want according to our nature as we're born into this world. We more, we, we want to, we want to choose sin. We're going to, we're going to choose sin over God because that's our nature because that's what we want. That's what we come into this world wanting. And, and the problem is, is that we can't give ourselves a new nature. We can't, um, we can't will ourselves a new nature. We can't give ourselves a new nature. If we're presented with a choice, we wouldn't want a new nature because we want and love our sin by, by birth. And we know that if, if we were given this choice to have a new nature, we would, we, we kind of think that, well, that's going to be no fun, right? Did you ever have a time in your life where you, where you kind of thought that way? If I go and live for God, it's going to be no fun at all. I, I remember thinking that before I was saved, even before I had any real religious knowledge. Uh, that's no fun. Well, then once you get saved, you realize, well, it's a whole lot of fun, isn't it? It's a wonderful life to serve and live for the Lord. Um, it, it's not as as bad as you thought. Why? I would say it's because you have a new nature. 
I see some people laughing. I'm like, well, I hope you don't think it's a horrible thing to follow the Lord. But it, it's something's changed, and it's it's our nature that's changed. Now we love things that we used to hate, and and so how do we get that new nature? Well, remember Ephesians three, the very last Ephesians two three, where Paul says, "And were we that is that is people before they were saved, we were by nature." children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of, of wrath. Listen to what Tom Schreiner says about this verse. He says, quote, the desires of people who are by nature objects of wrath are naturally and instinctively sinful desires. He says people do what they want to do in that they pursue their own pleasures and desires. Nonetheless, to describe this pursuit of their own desires as, as slavery because they have no desire, inclination, or aspiration to do good is appropriate. So you see what he's saying here? He's saying we, we by nature, we pursue what we want. We pursue our own pleasures and desires, but we can call that pursuit of our own pleasures and desires a type of slavery because we don't want anything other than sin because of of who we are. Now, Schreiner goes on to say this, quote, the bondage of the will then is a slavery to our own desires. Unregenerate human beings are captivated by what they want to do. So we are slaves to our own desires and, and unregenerate human beings, that is, human beings who aren't born again, are captivated, they're, they're, they're slaves by what they want to do. They're slaves to their own desires. Louis Burkhoff says this, quote, when we speak of man's corruption as total inability, we mean two things. Number one, we mean that the unrenewed sinner cannot do any act, however insignificant, which fundamentally meets God's approval and answers to the demands of holy law. So of God's holy law. When, when we think about um, the unrenewed person, when we talk about total inability and what Scripture teaches about total inability, we, we mean, first of all, that, that the sinner can't do anything which meets the demands of God's holy law. A sinner can't just decide one day, I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's enough of this. And they're just going to now go and do that. They, they, they can't, they don't, they're not able to do that. They don't have the power to do that. And then he says, number two, quote, that he cannot change his fundamental preference for sin and self to love God. Not even make an approach to such a change. In a word, he is unable to do any spiritual good, end quote. And really, that's just exactly what we saw in Jeremiah 13.23, that can the leper change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Well, then so can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So that's what Burkhoff says. Now, again, the question is, is this what Scripture actually teaches? Like, I, you know, I don't care what Louis Burkhoff says. I want to know what, is, what does God say about man? Well, we've seen some of it, but let, let, let's look a little bit more here. Let's go to John chapter 5. Let's see what Jesus himself says about man in his unregenerate state. John 5, 42. John 5, 42. 
Jesus says, but I know, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He says, I have come in my own name. I have, I have, sorry, I jumped a verse. I'm going to start again at verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Notice here, Jesus says, how can you believe when you are one of these kind of people that doesn't have the love of God in you, you, you'll receive anyone who comes in their own name. You'll receive somebody who comes in man's name, but you will not receive me because you are more concerned about what men think than about what God thinks. You don't have, again, in verse 42, you don't have the love of God within you. Matthew Barrett says about, about this verse, he says, quote, at the root of man's depravity is a rejection and hatred for Jesus Christ, which reveals the root issue in man's corruption, namely a failure to give glory to God. End quote. Uh, John Owen says this in, in his little book called A Display of Arminianism uh, in the works of John Owen. He says, quote, If the grace of our conversion be nothing more than a moral persuasion, we have no more power of obeying it in that estate wherein we are dead in sin than a man in his grave has in himself to live anew and come out at the next call. I don't know if you could kind of follow that, but what he's saying is if all that's happening in conversion is that I'm trying to convince somebody on a moral level to, to turn from sin and turn to God, right? Stop loving sin and start loving God. If, if that's all that I'm doing is just urging people and, and persuading them of that, then there's, there's no power in just that any more than if I went to the graveyard and I said, come on out, everybody. Right? That's what John Owen say. Come on out, all you dead people. Come on out. There's, of course, my words aren't going to bring those people out. Well, in the same way, in the spiritual realm, my words, if that's all that's happening, my words have no power to make somebody come alive from the dead. Even me reading Scripture's words just by themselves, there's, there's no power there to make people rise from the dead. And so this is, this is what we're dealing with, with, with fallen man. They don't have the love of God in them, and, and they, they need something greater than a mere persuasion. Let's go to just next chapter over, John 6 and 43. John 6, 43 and 44. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Then he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So look at that, what, what Jesus says. That's a, an absolute statement. No one can come to me. I, I, I haven't seen this video myself, but I, I've heard 
of R.C. Sproul just explaining that, just kind of going line by line through that. I wonder if any of you have maybe seen this, where where R.C. Sproul just walks through and he says, no one. Well, that means there, there's no exception to that. There's no person who can do this thing. And and what can they not do? Well, what you know, what what is what is this thing that 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 there's no exception to? What is this thing that nobody can do? Well, they they are not able to come. They're not able to come to Jesus. Well, why are they not able to come? They they don't have this ability to come. And the and the reason is that the only way that they can come is if the Father who sent me draws him, and that's the person that Jesus says I will raise up on the last day. So so nobody has the ability in themselves to come to Christ to turn from their sins, to believe on Him, to, to live for the glory of God, unless the Father who sent Him draws Him. And, and that person whom the Father draws, Jesus says, I will raise Him up on the last day. Well, look at John 6, 61, just a little bit later in that, that same context. Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, He said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, "Why? this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, what we can see here, a couple things. One is that coming to Jesus is the same as believing in Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is that nobody is able to believe in him unless it has been granted him by the Father. And the reason, again, for all of this is because men don't naturally have the love of God in them, and they're not going to come to Christ unless... God does something powerful in their lives. Let's do a, a couple more here. John um, 8.42. Turn over to John 8.42. John 8.42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love Me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of My own accord, but He sent Me. Why do you not understand what I say? That's a great question. Why do you not understand? What, what's the reason? It is because you cannot bear my word. So they, they can't understand. They do not understand because there's an aversion in them to the word of Jesus, which is the word of God. Well, why do they have this aversion? Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And it is the will of, and you, and, and your will is to do your father's desires. There, there, there's the will of unsaved man to do the father's desires, the, the devil's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. 
The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And so there's this kind of categories that Jesus makes here. There's people who are of their father, the devil, and they reject the word of Jesus. They don't receive his testimony. And then there's some who are of God. We could say those are probably the same people that that the Father draws, right? And and those people are going to end up receiving the Word at some point in their life, and they're going to believe. But unless something supernatural happens to these people, they're going to continue to reject. They're not... They're not able to come. They're not able to believe. They're not able to receive unless God does something supernatural. And, we, and let me show you this. In, and I think, honestly, this is the last place here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 2 and verse 14. First Corinthians 2.14. Let, let me read it in the New American Standard and then I'll, I'll give it to you in the ESV. The New American Standard says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The ESV says this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now there's, there's two kind of statements here. And, and the first one is that the, the natural person, and, and what is the natural person? Well, it's just man as he comes into this world, right? The, the person who is unsaved, that's the natural person. And he does two things. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now, the things of the Spirit of God in the context is the gospel, right? That's, if you read, if you read all of chapter one and chapter two up to that point, you would understand that the things of the Spirit of God that, that Paul is preaching is the gospel and, and to the, to the unbelieving, uh, Jew, it is foolishness. Or wait, to the unbelieving Gentile, it's foolishness. And to the unbelieving Jew, uh, I forget what it, does anyone remember that's not trying to teach right now that can, can think of that? <laughs> I can't, anyway, it's foolishness and it's, it's something else. And, and that's, uh, like 118, right? Oh, there it is. So for, for the 118, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he says, uh, da, da, da. The Jews demand a sign, verse 22, Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So to the, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, it's, it's foolishness. And, and, and the natural man, whether he's Jew or Gentile, he doesn't accept these things. He doesn't accept the message of the cross. And then it says in the second part of that verse that he is not able to understand them. Now, it doesn't mean there that, that the, the natural man is not able to understand 
truths. Like, like he, you know, it's not like I could talk to him and he couldn't comprehend what I was saying. The, the idea is he's not able to understand them in a saving way that, that changes and transforms his life. And so he doesn't accept it. He rejects it. And he, he's not able to understand these things because there's a, a spirituality that's needed in order to discern these things that he is not able to have because it doesn't correspond with his nature. So man, man cannot and man does not. Man, man is unable and he's unwilling to be saved. And so again, we, we ask the question then, well, how can man be set free? What, what, what is it going to take to, to deliver man from this state that we've been describing all night? And there's really only three views on this throughout church history. There's really only three views. How is, how can, how can somebody get out of this thing? How can somebody be saved? The first view is called Pelagianism. Uh, Pelagius was a, uh, a monk, uh, he, uh, he was either a British monk that went to, to Rome and Italy or he was a Roman guy that went to Britain. I can't really remember. It doesn't matter where he's from. But he was a monk in about, about 400 AD. And he had this heretical view that, that the church from then on has, has described as heretical that, that man is basically good. That man is able, if he wanted to, to Love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, that was what Pelagius taught. He, he basically, what he did was everything that we just said, he just denied that. Right? Everything we said about the depravity of man, the deadness of man, the inability of man, Pelagius just said, no, man can do it. And, and he based that on his experience and, and he just basically, you know, you, you, it's one of those guys you say, well, you're going to have to cut out a lot of verses out of your Bible. And, um, and so the, the whole church, really from Augustine on, rejected Pelagius and his teachings and and called that a heretical view and said, no, 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 the only way that man can be saved according to Scripture is by God's grace, right? The, the Man can't do it himself. He needs God's grace to do it. Pelagius said, no, he doesn't need grace. Man can do it himself if he wants to. So that's that's a really bad view. That's a heretical view. Really... The only people that hold that view today are very, very bad heretics. You know, really, really have no idea what they're talking about. Um, if anyone has studied a little bit of history, they all say, okay, we've got to be saved by grace. Now, there's another view that I think is a, a bad view as well, and that's what we would call semi-Pelagianism or and you've probably you probably never heard semi-Pelagianism, but semi-Pelagianism or Arminianism. Now, there's some different branches of semi-Pelagianism. Arminian isn't the only one. For example, the Roman Catholic Church would be semi-Pelagian because they believe that God and man have to work together in order to save man. Arminianism isn't Pelagian. It's not fully Pelagian because they believe that salvation is actually by grace as well. Because Again, you pretty much have to deny Scripture to say that salvation's not by grace, right? And there's so many verses and so many places where it's so clear that we have to be saved by God's grace. And so to, to be at all biblical or have any semblance of biblicalism, 
You have to say that salvation is by grace. So, so how does the Arminian understand this? Well, what they say is that, that salvation is a work of both God and man. Ultimately, in Arminianism, it's actually, ultimately, it lies with man. And, and Wesley and, and these guys that are Arminian, they will actually say that. They will say at the end of the day, the ultimate reason why somebody is saved is because of what man decides. And the way that they, they do this and still say that salvation is by grace is they say there's this thing called prevenient grace. Can you just put up your hand if you've ever heard somebody say prevenient grace before? Okay, couple, couple folks. Okay, thank you for that. So, the, the, let me just tell you what, what, how the Arminian gets salvation by grace. They, they, they look at all those verses that we just looked at and they give it the two thumbs up. They say, boom, yes, totally. They, they say, I totally believe the depravity of man. But then they say, ah, but guess what? There's this grace, prevenient grace. Prevenient means it goes before. And so before anyone is actually depraved like we just read, there's a grace that comes to them that enables them to not have any of those effects of sin that we just talked about. So in, in other words, if you're, if you're able to follow this, in, in other words, all those verses that we just read, nobody's actually like that. Because there's a certain kind of grace that makes them not like that so that they can ultimately decide whether they want to get saved or not. Now, the thing that's really hard is you will never, ever read your Bible and see a verse that explains the grace that goes like that that makes men not like what we just said. Right? All the verses that we just said are not some hypothetical, theoretical state that man is in. Right? They, they're the actual state that men are in. That they are actually enslaved, not just kind of theoretically enslaved. They're actually dead, not just theoretically dead, but then kind of alive because of this grace that I didn't find a verse for. Now, now there's like four, four or five verses that that John Wesley really liked to use. And, and we're not going to do this, but we could, or if you have questions, I've, I've taught on this in other places, and we could go through all of those verses and just show that it's not what John Wesley said. But in Arminianism, in semi-Pelagianism, total depravity, they would say yes, but it actually isn't a real thing. They, they would say, I believe in depravity, but nobody's actually like that. And, and when you think about it, um, what, what they end up having to say is that even people who've never heard the gospel are really able to get themselves out of that state. And, and the question that I, that I would want to ask an Arminian is, oh boy, I lost it. Um, the question that we would, we would want to ask them is, Wow. This is like something that I thought I wouldn't put in my notes because I, I just, you know, at the end I'll just be okay and I'll just, won't need those notes. Um, does anybody else know the question <laughs> that you would want to ask? Her? Um, this is great. Well, I, I think what you would, you would want to ask is you'd, you'd want them to show you a verse where it shows that, that the f- effects of total depravity are, are actually nullified. And, and here, and here, here it is. How can you, how can you make this choice for God or to love God or to believe or 
or to understand or whatever, how can you do those things if they're against your nature? You see, what we've learned about men is that their nature is to love sin, right? To choose sin, to desire sin, and to be captive to the desires of the flesh. Well, how can they now choose opposite of that when their nature is not agreeable to those things yet? Did you guys follow that? You see, there's something fundamental about our nature that would need to be changed before we would desire God and the things of salvation. And so the, the, the question for the Arminian then is how can you have a person making choices contrary to their nature before that nature is chained? And, and again, they would say, well, there's a special kind of grace that goes before. It doesn't quite change your nature, but it does it enough so that you can kind of, so that you're now, you're not really depraved. You're, you're kind of this, in this middle ground where you're, it's really up to you. And um, I just I don't see any evidence for that in the Bible. The, the third way that we can understand that man comes out of that is is what we would call Augustinianism. Augustini, Aug, Augustus was the one who refuted Pelagius in about 400 A.D. Um, Augustinianism was was the the kind of church's view from from then about 400 A.D. Um, kind of got a little bit lost in some of the dark ages. That's what, that, what Calvin really came back to. Often today, Augustinianism is called Calvinism, at least when it comes to salvation. And, and what, what we would say, what, what they would say, and, and I'll just tell you right now, I'm, I'm with the Augustinian Calvinistic view, is that the way that man, we're, we're, we're asking how can somebody get saved out of this? And the way that I would understand it and see it in Scripture is that God overcomes this state in the sinner. That God Himself has chosen and now by the power of the Holy Spirit comes through the preaching of the Gospel and He makes us alive with Christ. He changes our nature. He opens our eyes. Right, All these kind of uh, of of languages he he opens the prison doors so that we can now see right he turns on the lights right these are these are kind of sayings that we see in scripture that describe what god does in salvation he can make the leopard change his spots right he can change the ethiopian skin he can he can make somebody who's dead alive and then with that new nature the very first thing that we do is we we're like, wow, I can see, right? The, the light is on and now we're, we, uh, why didn't I see it before? Why, why didn't I, un- you know, I, I remember when I first got saved too, I was just like, what in the world? How come I didn't understand these things? And then I went and tried to tell everyone of my friends, you gotta see what I see. And they were, they were dead and they were blind and they were darkened and they, they, they were like I was two weeks before and they had no idea what I was talking about and thought I was nuts. Well, when God turns on the lights, when God makes somebody alive, all of a sudden they have a new nature and they choose God and, and believe and they're now able to do so because of what God has done. And so, so God draws us to Christ and He does that by the power of the Holy Spirit, but He does it through the preaching of the Word. He doesn't do that kind of separately from the Word. He does it through the Word. 
And that's why, as a church, so, you know, to, to just kind of wrap up this thing on, on the, the proper view of man, because we believe these things about man, we preach the gospel and rely on God's power. And that, that's, that's really what I want to say, right? What do we do about this? We recognize, look, it's impossible for people to get saved. I could, I could preach and morally persuade and I can't make dead people come to life. But I believe in a God who can do that, who's, who's powerful to do that. And so I'm going to do what he said and look for him to do a miracle. I've got a, an Alistair Begg quote. It, do any of you listen to Shai Lin? In, in Shai Lin, there's a, yeah, all right, Aiden, thank you. The, the, in Shai Lin, there's, there's one part where Alistair Begg is talking and he says, it would take a miracle to do that, right? And, and he's talking about how, how somebody needs to be made alive. And that, that's what we believe. When, when I preach the gospel on Sunday, I literally believe that it's impossible for anyone to ever get saved or want to get saved, but that God does miracles and that through the preaching of the gospel, He will save. And then even now that you are saved and have this new ability within you that you're going to grow as you hear the Word of God. And so you're going to become more and more separate from sin and more and more like Jesus Christ in your actual life by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of His Word. And so we, we know man's problem, and we also know now the solution is, is a, a mighty work of God in people's lives. And so we preach the gospel, and we pray, and we rely on the Lord to do what He said. And so we just we understand then that it's not going to be up to any cool thing we do. Like, it, it's okay to, to make this building nice, but a nice building's not going to save people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, right? Uh, any kind of fancy thing that I could do is just not going to do it, right? It's not going to be enough. And so the only thing that we can really do is rely on God to do something that we cannot do. And so... And so that's, that's where, that's where I'm at. That's where you're at. Now, if you, if you are part of Grace Bible Fellowship and you're just not convinced about semi-Pelagianism or Pelagianism or, or, well, you better not be Pelagianist. Uh, but if you're not sure about the sovereignty of God and salvation and stuff, it, that's okay. I, I'm gonna, this is what I believe. This is what I'm gonna teach. And, and I hope from scripture, as we continue to look at these things, that you'll be more and more persuaded. Some of these things are, are difficult to understand and, and deep things. And, and that's okay. But regardless, I want you to know, at the, at the very, very least, I want you to know this, that men are sinful and that the gospel is the solution. And then you'll understand what we're trying to do as a church. Then, then you'll understand why we don't have a smoke show, right? Or, or why we don't have some of those, I don't know, some, some cool thing. Why we don't do a balloon drop. Why, why does he every week preach the gospel? I already know that. It's because that's the problem that we're trying to cure. That's, that's the, that's the medicine that people need. And so I'm not trying to give any other medicine. And if that's going to be frustrating for you, then 
then you're going to have to go somewhere where they give a different kind of medicine. Because when, when I understand that, that sin is men's problem, and, and we understand that as a church, then that's the medicine we're given is, is the gospel, prayer, relying on God. And really, wherever you are on this spectrum of, of salvation, it really doesn't matter at that point because if you can agree that sin is man's problem and the gospel in Christ is the solution, then then we're on the same page and and we can work together. So um, that's basically you know I'm, I'm two minutes uh, under time here, but we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up with that. Unless there's like a, a final question that anyone has. Awesome. Well, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you. As weird as it sounds, we thank you that, that we can understand our depravity. We thank you that, that uh, even though we were like that, that you loved us with a great love. We thank you that you saved us, that you opened our eyes, that you turned on the lights, that you delivered us from the dominion of Satan and brought us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We thank you that although we were unable and unwilling to come to you and hostile towards you, yet you made us alive with Christ and, and brought us to salvation. And we pray that as saved people that we would, that you would work continually in our life more and, and deliver us more and more from sin and make us more and more like Christ so that we can glorify you. And we pray that you would make us a place where, where people would come to know Jesus Christ and be saved. We thank you, Lord, that, that you can overcome our sinful state, that you can change our nature, that you can make us born again, and, uh, and that you are that powerful and, and that good to do it. We pray that we would see it time and time again in this place and, and, and through, through us, that you might be glorified and that more people might turn from futile things into worshipers of You. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.